The Old Pilot's Plain Tales Dorosi and Bomba The Second World War is over and the victorious Allied powers have reached the Potsdam Agreement on the fate of post-war Europe. The defeated nation of Germany has been divided into four temporary occupation zones, largely decided by the final positions of the Allied armies, as has the capital city of Berlin, which is split into four sectors. Berlin, however, lies well within the Soviet occupation zone, and travel to and from the sectors back to the zones controlled by the United States, Great Britain and France isn't easy. In a meeting held in June 1945, Stalin informs his German communist leaders that he will attempt to undermine the occupation of Berlin by Britain and the States so that they would be forced to withdraw from the city, leaving it entirely under Soviet control. Stalin's intent is strengthened by the lack of formal agreement guaranteeing road and rail access to the city, something that had been assumed by the Allies. Air travel routes had, however, been agreed and three corridors existed. Two ran from Hamburg and Buchberg in the British zone and one from Frankfurt in the American zone. In line with Stalin's attempts to force the Allies to leave Berlin, in 1946 the Soviets stopped delivering food from their zone to West Berlin, and only a single rail line was permitted to serve Berlin from the Allied zones, limited to just 10 trains a day. Even these were given many restrictions, with the Soviets delaying and searching them. Road links were also equally badly disrupted. Even the guaranteed air routes were affected, with transports being buzzed by Soviet aircraft until eventually a British Viking collided with a Yak-3 fighter, killing everyone on board both aircraft. Finally, in 1948, in retaliation to the introduction of a new German currency in the western zones, the Soviets blockaded the land transport links to the city. The official communication said, We are warning both you and the population of Berlin that we shall apply economic and administrative sanctions that will lead to the circulation in Berlin exclusively of the currency of the Soviet occupation zone. Nobody was fooled as to the ultimate aim of the Eastern forces. In addition to cutting the road, rail and canal links, the electricity connections were also severed, since the generation plants were in the Soviet sector. Winter was coming, and the two million citizens of West Berlin who had survived the war now had only 36 days of food and 45 days of coal remaining. Although the Soviets offered free food to anyone who crossed into East Berlin, their offer was overwhelmingly rejected by the people of the city. The city was surrounded by one and a half million Soviet troops, so the 22,500 Western troops couldn't be expected to resist an attack. The Soviet military administration celebrated what was sure to be a foregone conclusion, the handing over of West Berlin. Many options were considered by the Allies, 
from a ground invasion to the threat of nuclear war, but the unlikely plan to feed the city of Berlin from the air won the day. Famously, the commander of the USAF in Europe was asked if he could haul coal. We, Lemay answered, can haul anything. It was calculated that 1,500 tonnes of cargo would need to be shifted daily to supply the city's food needs, a mixture of milk, sugar, potatoes, meat, fat, cereal and the like. An additional 3,500 tonnes of coal and fuel would be needed for heat and power. Initially, it was thought that the USAF, using C-47 Skytrains and Douglas DC-3s, could move about 300 tonnes a day, and the RAF, with its DC-3s and Avro Yorks, about 400 tonnes. Not nearly enough. The people of West Berlin were told that they would have to make sacrifices, but Mayor Reuter and his aide, Herr Willy Brandt, assured everyone that they would manage. The lift started off shakily, and only around 90 tonnes a day was moved in the first week. The second week saw a thousand tonnes a day, but the East Germans ridiculed the effort, referring to it as a futile gesture to save face and maintain an untenable position in West Berlin. It was soon recognised that better organisation was needed. Up stepped Major General William Tunner. Tunner had worked in the military air transport service and he bought some well-needed organisation. He flew to Berlin to see the lay of the land on a day when the weather was poor. A C-47 crashed and burned on the runway at Tempelhof. The aircraft behind burst its tyres trying to avoid the wreckage and a further transport ground-looped, mistakenly landing on a runway under construction. Aircraft were stacked high overhead the field and it was obvious that the tower had lost control of the situation. As a result, Tanner instituted a number of rules. Instrument flight rules would be in effect at all times and there would be a single control point for all aircraft. Aircraft would be timed to arrive only three minutes apart and would only have one chance of making an approach. There would be no second goes or stacking. Aircraft with sloping decks like the C-47 would be replaced with the tricycle-geared C-54s as it was much quicker to unload the cargo. The pilots were banned from leaving their aircraft for any reason. Mobile snack bars came round and the operations officers handed out departure clearances as the pilots ate. In this way, a 10-ton load could be taken off and the aircraft turned around in 30 minutes. The Berliners were also helping. Paid in the form of rations, the local people were willing workers who at one point set a record of unloading 10 tonnes of coal in 5 minutes and 45 seconds. After two months of operations, the airlift was providing 1,500 flights a day delivering more than 4,500 tonnes of cargo. However, as winter approached, the needs of the city rose with an additional 6,000 tonnes of coal needed a day. The British added their larger Handley Page Hastings to the fleets of aircraft and with Tempelhof and Gatow at full capacity, the RAF began operating Sunderland flying boats into Lake Teagle. 
Gail Halvorsen was one of the American pilots who took part in the airlift. As he watched his cargo being unloaded, he could see the gratitude in the eyes of the German ground crew. Their leader came to the cockpit with tears on his cheeks and his hand thrust out in thanks. The people were hungry for food and freedom. Gratitude is the magic potion, Halvorsen said, that makes enemies into friends. Unloading near the aircraft fence, he wandered over to a group of children who were gathered there. Breaking up some chewing gum, he handed it around and promised that, if they were well behaved, he would drop off some more. How will we know you? the children asked. I'll wiggle my wings, he replied. That night, Halvorsen, his co-pilot and engineer, pulled their candy rations and tied up little parachutes made from handkerchiefs. On the next day, he dropped off the chocolate bars to the kids at the end of the runway, and the day after that, some more. Before long, there was a pile of mail at the base ops addressed to Uncle Wiggly Wings. When the story finally came out, his commanding officer was less than impressed, but when General Tanner heard of it, he saw an opportunity to improve the morale of the hard-pressed Berliners with a lifting story of generosity. So started Operation Little Vittles. Other pilots participated, and when the news reached the US, children all over the country sent in their own candy to help out. Soon the major manufacturers joined in, and in the end over 23 tonnes of candy, attached to a quarter of a million little parachutes, were dropped to the children of Berlin. When Halvorsen returned to the States, the operation continued with others taking over the commitment. Gale spent time travelling around America, thanking those who had helped for their generosity. In particular, he remembered one of his biggest supporters, a homebound lady called Dorothy Groger, who enlisted all of her friends and acquaintances to sew handkerchiefs and donate funds. Over the years, he met many Berliners who had received candy from the Rosian Bomber, as they called him. One who was by then 60 years old told how he had caught a Hershey bar, it took him a week to eat it, and he hid it day and night. But the chocolate wasn't the most important thing, he said. The most important thing was that someone in America knew I was in trouble, and someone cared. That meant hope. One could live on thin rations, but not without hope of freedom. Gail went on to have a successful career in the aviation industry and continued to carry out good works throughout his life, he received many humanitarian awards for his efforts, some of which were the Legion of Merit, Chesney Air Force Award, the Distinguished Humanitarian Award from the Institute of German Relations, the Eric Warburg Prize, an induction into the Utah Aviation Hall of Fame, the Grand Cross of the Order of Merit of the Federal Republic of Germany, Germany's highest award, and in 2014 he was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal. The Berlin Airlift was a remarkable combination of tenacity, good command and a fierce determination to help the beleaguered city. It had some troubled periods, such as when a long-lasting fog covered the city for weeks. All too often, aircraft would make the flight but be unable to land. On one day out of 42 aircraft, only one made it in. 
The city was down to its last few days of coal when the weather cleared. Over the next month, however, 171,000 tonnes were delivered. Eventually, in April 1949, the Soviet news agency TASS reported that the blockade of the city was to be lifted. By May, the roads and railways were open and an enormous crowd celebrated in West Berlin. The flights continued for a few weeks to build up a surplus, but then they were wound down. The airlift had lasted 15 months in total. The USAF, the RAF and the Royal Australian Air Force, with pilots from America, the UK, Australia, Canada, New Zealand and South Africa, delivered a total of 2,326,406 tonnes of cargo. The distance they flew would almost reach the sun, and at its height a plane landed at Berlin every 30 seconds. However, the operation had its share of tragedy. There were a total of 101 fatalities, with 17 American and 8 British aircraft being lost. The cost was shared between the USA, UK and Germany, and was somewhere between 200 and 500 million dollars at the time. The intangible benefits, though, of easing animosities between Germany and the Allied forces were enormous. Former enemies recognised their common interest, their shared values and mutual respect, which, in some ways, paved the way to the final and successful reunification of Germany. Mm -hmm.